On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the pyrethrum harvest looking good in the state. Yes, it's going pretty well despite the, the conditions we've endured over the last 12 months. It has taken a bit of a toll being so wet and also the, the cold, frosty June didn't help onto grovey plants and we did experience some dieback. And using sensors to help monitor injuries suffered by shearers. Yeah, one sensor each on these two muscles, just on one side of the body, um, as well as some other sensors that, that measure basically the, the body movement. So we're looking at the, um, the actual body um, motion at just on, on the ribcage and the, and the pelvis, and then these two muscle sensors as well. A study to help shearers avoid certain injuries and the latest pyrethrum harvest coming along well. It's coming up shortly for you, as is the cherry harvest in Tasmania. We'll have cherries for Christmas, will we? The answer in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this Monday, the big week before the big day on Sunday. And I know you're thinking cherries amongst other goodies on the Christmas table. We'll also take a look at the year for the wool industry, which has certainly had its ups and downs. Also, a check on the weather with a clearer indication what's in store for the Christmas weekend. And we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 That number 0438 922 Well, the new season Tasmanian cherries are starting to appear in shops and outlets after a slow start to the latest picking season. On the interstate market, Tasmanian cherries are getting record prices, which we'll hear about in just a few minutes. But one of the big cherry growers in the south, Nick Hansen, says they've started to pick the pre-Christmas cherries, although the quantity is expected to be down this year due to the weather. We started picking last Wednesday and packing last Wednesday for the local market in Tasmania. And yeah, it's, it's good. We're a little bit later this year, as you can appreciate, with the colder sort of the, the wetter weather, but more importantly, the colder weather has made it a little bit later. But nonetheless, we've made a start and it all looks good. What about uh, the quantity and the quality? Mm, okay, so, so quantity's down a little bit this year, mainly through a little bit of rain splitting. We've had, obviously, the wet weather, so we're probably probably down at maybe 15 to 20% on our volume due to the splitting, which we're removing through the packing shed, and the pickers are doing a wonderful job, as always. Um, our quality's good. We, we would have liked some more sun hours just to sort of pull the sugar through into the fruit a little bit more. Um, but having said that, we're, we're doing the best we can with what we've got. We're picking the trees twice to get a colour pick and then letting them ripen a bit and then pulling the second lot off um, as a colour pick. So, yeah, no, I think the customers in all the commercial outlets through Tasmania will find the fruit from not only ourselves but other growers um, pretty good value this year. And when do you think the season will get into full swing? Well, we, we certainly do a, do a two-season. It's almost like a pre-Christmas and then a post-Christmas. We won't uh, do a post-Christmas pick this year until probably about starting about the 3rd or 4th of January. Normally that would start for us about the 30th so of December. So we're probably five days behind, I think, at this point in time. And uh, what are customers expecting to, uh, to pay this season? More than normal? Uh, I think so. I mean, we've had to put our prices up a couple of dollars a kilo across the board in our wholesale pricing to the commercial outlets simply because we've seen unexpected, well, sorry, unprecedented price rises the last two years, With certainly with fuel, wages. Um, we've seen a, a massive change with the Fair Work Australia decision on how our piece rate pickers uh, are paid, and that's going to have an impact at our, at our wages level. We're probably expecting to see some 20 to 25% increase in our picking bill this year. 
so yeah, I, I think certainly we've we've certainly upped their prices by a couple of dollars. I'd be surprised if other growers haven't done the same, and I think that'll be reflected as the uh, at the retail end as well. Yeah, we're hearing some big wholesale prices being paid for interstate uh, or cherries that end up interstate. Do you send money interstate? Oh, no, not at this time of the year. The, the Tasmanian community can eat everything we produce. Uh, we'll probably produce somewhere in the vicinity of 25 to 30 tonnes before Christmas. Um, we have done more, we have done less, but just looking about this this year, and certainly the Tasmanian people will eat everything we can produce. Any problems with the numbers of workers? Not at the moment, touch wood. Um, our pickers are quite strong. The, the backpacker... Uh, numbers are up this year on last year, which is good. There seems to be a lot more backpackers around this year. I would attribute that to the fact that our friends on the mainland are having a pretty ordinary time of it, unfortunately for them, um, with floods and rain. So they've come down here a little bit earlier looking for work, which is a positive. The local community for our casual base, our pack staff and our casual supervision staff for the summer is looking very good. Um, So at this point, I'd say we're in balance. Okay. And uh, the outlet at Granton, is it in full swing? Yes, a little outlet over there at Grant and at Terry Hut, that's going really well and people supporting that very well. And we always like to, as you said before, Tony, we can get more money for our fruit in Brisbane and Sydney, uh, even after we take out the freight. But there's a duty for us to supply the Tasmanian community with fresh fruit and cherries, especially at this time of the year. And uh, yes, we, we do lose 3 or $4 a kilo on our mainland, but it's a, it's really nice to grow fruit for the locals and get the feedback that we do. It's Old Beach Cherry Grower Nick Hansen on the start of the new cherry season. Well, another southern grower, Tim Reid, says he can't believe the price is being paid for Tasmanian cherries on the wholesale market on the mainland, and he says the crop is running late this year. There will be cherries around, not as many as normal. You know, I think they'll be more expensive simply based on the principle of supply and demand. So, you know, I just know in the last few days, the last week we sent some of the first cherries we've harvested uh, interstate up to Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide. And interestingly, some of the prices people will be shocked at, but um, in the wholesale market, 30 millimetre cherries, that's sort of around about the, the, the bigger average size, I suppose. Now, they, they, they were wholesaling at $70 per two kilo cart. That's wholesale. The 32 millimetre cherries starting to get a big, bit bigger. They were 80 to $85 per two kilo cart wholesale. That's in Sydney, Brisbane and Adelaide. So, um, you know, just I've never ever heard of prices like that before, uh, way above our expectation. And we just wish we had more of them. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only problem. There's not a lot of them around. So the weather's delayed the harvest of the cherries? The, the weather has. The cold weather's delayed the harvest. We, You know, we're scratching around trying to get a few to help the local stores in Tasmania uh, this week but you know they're really hard to find we've got we've got a hundred pickers in the orchard today at plenty um, and they're shifting around a lot from patch to patch and picking over trees that have got a few mature cherries on them or ripe enough to to, to, to eat so you know it, it's really hard going and that's putting the cost up for us to, to find cherries at this time. So the locals uh, who want cherries for Christmas can expect to put their hands deeper in the pocket. <laughs> Well, they will be a bit dearer than, than last year. I think that's just everybody's expecting that. And, um, 
you know, as I say, supply and demand will hold back cherries from being sent interstate and overseas to try and cater for the local people as best we can. There are some other growers around, not just our own company, but other growers doing similar. So uh, there'll be cherries around. Um, albeit, I noted uh, an ABC report actually over the weekend on price of fruit and vegetables in Australia, and they were purporting cherries to be about 33% higher in value uh, around mainland shops compared to previous years. What about the exports to Japan, the Japanese cherries? Uh, they're a regular. We do every year. Uh, we grow a specific Japanese varieties for the Japanese market, and we've got a special deal on those with the Japanese importer. So effectively, uh, they rent a couple of hectares of orchard off us. They pay rent for the orchard and they carry the the cost then of that rent covers the cost of production. So, you know, if they get damaged in the weather or whatever or they're a crop failure, it's at their loss, not ours. You know, we, we grow them specifically for them and they're not really of any interest to anyone in other markets anyway. They're specific for the Japanese market. They're, they're smaller cherry. They're a white flesh cherry, like a peachy coloured cherry, the yellow in colour with a with a pink blush. Um, but in Japan, they're so popular that the, the premium ones that have got a nice lot of colour and a good can sell for up to $1 each. They put five little cherries on a tray and a, a stretch a bit of shrink wrap over them and put them out at about five Australian dollars for five cherries. So, I mean, it's a very special market. Uh, the percentage that make it to the actual retail outlet is low compared to, you know, often we'll get 80, 90% of the cherries we harvest, the dark cherries will make it into a box for sale in Australia or some other country. But the Japanese variety cherries, you know, sometimes you only get 40 or 50% of the cherries actually make it onto the retail shelf. They're so finicky to grow and damage very easily. Uh, after Christmas, do you expect uh, when harvest gets into full swing that uh, things will change slightly and they might be a bit more affordable? Oh, I definitely do. There's a lot of cherries on the trees. The, the crops look pretty good here in Tasmania. Um, a lot of mainland growers have been absolutely smashed early on, you know, with early cherries, but a lot of them have got quite good later variety cherries that were were not damaged by the rain because they simply weren't mature enough to get damaged. So they'll, they'll be coming on the market and, and Tasmanian cherries will, you know, particularly through January, there'll be a lot of cherries around, I think, and so you'll see more reasonable prices then. But, um, yeah, so more, more akin to what people are used to paying, I think. Okay, so it's another Christmas for you every day. Work, work, work. Uh, well, we're very fortunate. There's a lot of people around looking for work. And so, um, yeah, we've got a, a good team of people um, helping us both in the orchards and in the packhouse. People lined up, they're all, all, you know, champing at the bit, waiting to have a go, all waiting for the cherries to mature. So um, I'm just hoping they'll hang around till the crop's ready. So uh, if a bit of luck, we'll be able to get them off in good time and in, in good condition. Cherry grower Tim Reed on the latest cherry harvest, which is just underway. Some amazing wholesale prices of cherries from Tasmania being paid on the mainland, as you heard there, $70 to $85 for two kilo boxes. And that's the wholesale price, uh, as Tim said, never been seen before. All right, coming up, the pyrethrum harvest, the latest harvest underway shortly, and an expanding industry. And also we'll look at heat-tolerant oysters. 
nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. You may be noticing more bright white fields of daisies dotted across northern Tasmania this year than you've ever seen before if you've been driving in the area. And unlike a lot of other crops this year, pyrethrum is in for a bumper harvest, according to Mark Raspin from Botanical Resources Australia. However, thanks to the poor weather, this year's crop is already more than a week behind schedule, as Meg Powell reports. As global demand for pyrethrum and natural insecticide soars, so too have the amount of farmers growing the crop. And despite hardships caused by the weather, pyrethrum growers in Tasmania and Victoria are preparing for their biggest harvest in six seasons. My name's Mark Raspin and I'm the pyrethrum production manager with Botanical Resources of Australia. Mark, how is pyrethrum going this year? Yes, it's going pretty well despite the, the conditions we've endured over the last 12 months. It has taken a bit of a toll being so wet and also the, the cold, frosty June didn't help onto growthy plants and we did experience some dieback. But given all the rain that we've had, the crop in most instances is still um, holding up pretty well and looks to be dis- displaying some good good quality and hopefully some good yield coming through. I want to just talk about pyrethrum in general a bit too. It's It seems to be something I'm seeing more and more of on the coast here. We look around and there's fields dotted around the place everywhere is is it a growing industry yeah it's definitely a growing industry and for this year it'll be our biggest harvest in six seasons so we've certainly got more in the ground and looking forward to getting it into the shed our sales opportunities are high so we are certainly looking at uh, further expanding the industry in the in the coming two or three years where are you hoping to expand to at the moment it's pretty much just in the north are you hoping to go south will we see it in the midlands no the south and midlands are probably too cold a climate to to grow it and if we have a wet season the soils don't stand up that well we really need free draining soils and a temperate climate so we also grow pyrethrum in Victoria and here in Tasmania we are down in Hagley, Bishopsburn, the northeast, and as far as uh, Sisters Hills. So it's a very competitive landscape out there in farming here and in Victoria. There's a lot of options for growers and a lot of attractive options currently, uh, even with things like fat lambs and cattle uh, earning growers, good income, so it is is uh, very competitive but our our increases will come where we're currently growing. What about globally? How What's the appetite like in the global market for pyrethrum? In terms of sales it's very high. The um, end user is after more pyrethrum so our, our customers are certainly interested in gaining more and there's always interest in other customers coming on board to, to buy pyrethrum. So really it's a matter of trying to produce enough to satisfy them we produce just under 80% of the total global demand and there are some other countries out there like Tanzania that do also produce and contribute to the world supply. 
It's a it's a sort of natural insecticide, isn't it? it has there been a shift in attitudes towards natural products? I believe so, yes. In the EU and the US, a lot of synthetic chemistry struggles for re-registration. So it's, it's something that uh, consumers and growers or farmers can no longer use. So there's certainly a high demand for products like pyrethrum in the market. Northwest Tasmanian farmer Des Hingston started growing pyrethrum about 20 years ago, and he hasn't looked back since. I'm Des Hingston. I'm Jordan Hingston, and I'm a farmer. My grandfather came here, come here in about 1945 and been in the family line ever since. This very block that we're standing on now, could you describe it just for our radio listeners where we're standing? Oh, in God's country. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, we're probably about eight k's inland from the sea, looking across towards North Motton from here, undulating type of country, good draining soil and pyrethrum seems to suit our industry reasonably well. You've been farming here your whole life, as has Geordie. You must have grown a lot of crops over that time. When did you start growing pyrethrum? Yeah, we've probably grown pyrethrum pretty consistent in the last 20 years, and I guess we headed that way um, with other crops becoming a bit more unviable than what we were used to. So, What about it um, attracted you? Yeah, the t- time of the year... It was grown and the the work that we got to put into it, you know, we enjoy that type of work. It's been um, a rough year in terms of the weather. How has the crop gone this year? Really struggled with the, all the rain that we've had, um, but it's seemed to have stood up reasonably well and we've had a bit of sunshine and warmth in the last, you know, few weeks and it's helped it a lot. If we can get this sort of weather towards harvest will be very handy. Geordie, I might ask, how old are you? Uh, I'm 15. And you have plans to stay, stay on the family farm? Yeah, that would be the that'd be the dream. Just because it's been in the generation for so many years and I really enjoy it. Do you reckon you'll bring in some new tech into the farm when you're in charge? Yeah, hopefully. I really like the GPSs in the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> Des, how does it make you feel to know that your grandson's keen to take on the farm? Oh, uh, absolutely love it. Um... It's what keeps me going, what gets me up all the morning. How's the pyrethrum going this year? Is it on time? Good question, Meg. With all the rain and the mild conditions, it's certainly running seven to ten days later than what we've seen historically. Uh, we haven't had a whole lot of heat. It's been very mild. So for the for the uh, temperature-wise and the crop mature, maturing slowly, it's very good for um, building the pyrethrums in the flower. So we'd certainly hopefully see a spike in that. But to finish off, we really need to see plenty of sunshine and a bit of warmth. But we are certainly going to be a week to, to uh, 10 days late commencing our cutting this year. Does that affect your profits at all? No, not at all. That's not going to be the case. Pyre from maturing slowly is favourable uh, and, and harvesting a little bit uh, later. It's a different window of opportunity and, and going to run a little bit later, but it'll work out the same result. We've got... Um, additional headers coming into the state this year to help us with the harvest so we've got a lot of capacity there to get the crop into the shed a lot quicker so it's really just going to be uh, getting it to mature up over the next couple of weeks and hopefully make a start uh, just before the new year. Yeah it's very white now and it'll go off in colour as it matures you know until we lose most of the white flowers and then 
they'll cut and row it so that we can head the seed out of it? When the crop's growing, we are frequently testing flowers to determine what the maturity is. So we know in our industry when the flowers are uh, at their peak to cut. Do you ever hear from farmers saying that people have just popped into their fields for some photo? They're just so pretty and people do love photos among flowers. Yeah, we regularly get tourists stopping here on the road and taking photos of the paddocks from the fence. Yeah, you, you do see it, particularly tourists coming into the state, often uh, after a few snapshots in Porree from paddocks. I guess um, as long as the farmer's okay with it, really people are probably trespassing onto land, probably to, to take it over over the fence is probably a good idea, I think. Yes, stay on the right side of the fence. Botanical Resources Australia's Mark Raspin ending that uh, chat with Meg Powell about the blossoming pyrethrum industry. And we also heard from Gawler farmer Des Hingston and his grandson Jordan, who wants to carry on the tradition of growing those amazing flowers. Well, oyster lovers can celebrate a breakthrough with southeast Queensland scientists successfully breeding a heat-tolerant species to help aquaculture farmers battling warmer oceans, climate change and disease. Although blacklip rock oysters have been reared in Northern Territory hatchery before, it's the first time the native mollusks have been successfully bred so far south. Jennifer Nichols has the story. So we've just come down to the ponds at the research centre. So in the research centre, obviously, we have a mixture of laboratories, tanks, uh, climate-controlled rooms. At Queensland Fisheries' Bribe Island Research Centre, scientists Max Wingfield and Aidan Miller are working to future-proof the oyster industry. Here we have four large outdoor ponds, one of which we are trying to manage the algal blooms to provide an in-pond food source for larger oyster juveniles. Currently, all but one of Queensland's oyster farmers rely on producing Sydney rock oysters, a species increasingly plagued by the parasitic QX disease, which wiped out many oyster crops in New South Wales this year. Warmer water can stress the Sydney rock oyster. Its northern limit in Queensland is the town of 1770. That's restricted oyster farming to just 15% of the state's vast coastline. And Aidan Meller says the species is under increasing pressure. With climate change and temperature increases and warmer waters, it means the Sydney rocks can only go further south, so we can't actually increase it. So we're trying to find another species that oyster farmers can grow together, so when they have one problem with one oyster, the other one can still get to market. A hardy native species, blacklip rock oysters thrive in warmer northern Australian waters. But catching their tiny larvae in the ocean and successfully raising them is an incredibly time-consuming and unreliable process. So this year, the scientists tried breeding blacklip rock oysters at the Bribe Island Research centre. They're uh, warmer water, a bit more tropical preference. So we've been bringing them down, we've been trying to grow them during winter just to see if they'll survive down here in Moreton Bay and biosecure ponds and they've seemed to have held up and they've survived through and they seem to be growing relatively similar to the Sydney rock oysters. The scientists succeeded in the tricky task of getting the planktonic free-swimming larvae to settle and form shells in their oyster nursery. So we've got some upweller systems where the water comes up through the mesh screen, pumping food to the oysters and then kind of comes back into the ponds. Although blacklip rock oysters have been reared in a northern territory hatchery before, Max Wingfield says it's it's the first time the native mollusks have been successfully bred so far south. 
we're very encouraged that the Blacklip have survived and done well and uh, now we're confident that they would perform well in a southeast Queensland environment. There's potential to do the early nursery okay. stage to provide the industry with a more climate secure supply of juvenile oysters. It's estimated that Blacklip and other tropical rock oysters could have a production value of $72.6 million annually. That's more than double the value of the barramundi industry. In Bowen, 72-year-old John Collison runs Australia's only Blacklip rock oyster farm and he sent 35 large oysters down to Bribey Island so scientists can repeat the breeding experiment early in 2023. The problem that the Bowen farm has found is that they put out their spat collectors. They need to look after the spat collectors. They need to grow the spat for six, eight months before they can tell which spat are coral oysters or other species of oysters and which of the spat are black lip oysters. And yeah, they typically get about five to 10% of what they've been growing as the oyster they want. as no, the it's black not lip. efficient. Yeah, so the hatchery is much more efficient. We can provide them with 100% black lip oyster spat. And also with all the advances that modern agriculture, modern aquaculture, is making with selective breeding and improvement. To get the carefully selected broodstock fit and fat enough to spawn in climate-controlled indoor tanks, Fishery Technical Officer Trevor Borchett feeds them a specially cultivated microalgae brew. Microalgae plays a really important part in aquaculture and research. A number of different species here, we've got five different microalgae species, all used for different various uh, research purposes. At a workshop, oyster farmers sampling blacklip rock oysters for the first time gave them the thumbs up for looks texture and taste. The farmers, the Morton Bay farmers, were really extremely impressed. I was actually amazed at how enthusiastic they were about the black lip oyster. But much more work will be needed before the industry can expand. Black lip rock oysters have been found in the wild in Queensland as far south as the town of 1770. But the full extent of their range is unknown because most of Australia's ancient shellfish reefs have been destroyed. So because they're not recognised as native to Morton Bay, we have to go through the appropriate process and all the regulators need to be confident that the black lip wouldn't pose any sort of an environmental problem if they were farmed in southeast Queensland so there's a process to go through. What is certain is that oyster farming is considered one of the cleanest forms of aquaculture. They do a fantastic job in um, filtering and cleaning the water and improving the water quality of the environment. Yes, yeah, so oyster farming is one of the few uh, zero feed aquaculture. So you've got seaweed, oysters and I think probably mussels and other shellfish. Having oyster baskets on farms doesn't seem to take away from any of the local species. It seems to be a complex habitat for all sorts of small crabs and fish and a lot of the oyster farmers out in Morton Bay often talk about the turtles and the other species which like to inhabit in and around their leases. So it's, yeah, perfect, perfect aquaculture. Yeah, good neighbours. Queensland Fisheries Research Scientist Aidan Mallor ending that report from Jen Nichols on breeding heat-tolerant oysters. Coming up on the Country Hour, a look at the ups and downs of the wool year and helping shearers avoid injuries, plus a check on the weather, of course. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Foreign Minister Penny Wong will travel to China this week, marking the first visit by an Australian minister since 2019. Senator Wong will hold talks with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, during the visit, which coincides with the 50th anniversary of the Whitlam government establishing diplomatic ties with Beijing. Queensland's police ministers condemned two men accused of looting from the scene of last week's shooting tragedy 
on the Western Downs. The pair, aged 23 and 25, both from Tara, were arrested early yesterday. It's alleged they tried to steal two motorbikes from the isolated rural property where two constables and a neighbour were gunned down last Monday. Federal Member for Bass, Bridget Archer, says the Liberal Party has a number of lessons to learn from this year's electoral defeat and one of them is to recognise the mistakes of the former Prime Minister. Ms Archer crossed the floor to vote in favour of a censure motion against Scott Morrison over his decision to swear himself into a number of ministries without the knowledge of the Parliament. And Hillsong finder Brian Houston has told a Sydney court he sought legal advice to ensure he wasn't involved in a cover-up surrounding his father's abuse. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. We shall get to that uh, all-important Christmas Day weather in a moment. But uh, have we had any rainfall of note? No, there hasn't been any significant rainfall in the 24 hours to 9am this morning. And since 9am this morning, all we've had is 0.8 millimetres at Tasman Island. So a few little light showers pushing onto the south and the east coast. But most of Tasmania has been fine and mostly sunny so far this morning. And it's definitely a lot warmer than what we saw last week because last week was particularly cold due to a persistent southeasterly airstream. Yeah, I thought I was in another state when I walked outside this morning. Um, the outlook as we head into the uh, Christmas weekend, what, what can we expect? Well, for the first half of this week, we'll see settled weather continuing with mostly fine conditions expected for Tasmania and close to average temperatures. And then showers will develop across most parts of Tasmania on Thursday and Friday with possible thunderstorms during Friday afternoon and evening about parts of the north and the east with the most likely areas being the northern midlands and the central north. And as we head into the weekend, which is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, it's looking like we'll see showers about the west of the state and mostly fine weather elsewhere, apart from isolated showers about higher ground in the northeast on Saturday. And there is pretty high confidence in this forecast, even though it is a week out, because we have good agreement with our computer models that there'll be a generally west to northwesterly airstream. Temperatures are also likely to be average to slightly above average on Christmas Day. Oh, that sounds good. Might please yeah, everyone. I know. I feel, I feel like that's good news for most parts of Tasmania, although pretty typical weather in the west where we see showers passing through with those westerly winds. Okay. What about uh, warnings? Do we have any at this stage? No, there's no warnings for today or tomorrow. And if we look a little more closely at the coastal waters, today we have south to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, tending east to northeasterly about the northwest and afternoon sea breezes in the north and the west. Swells in the west and south are southwesterly of one and a half to two metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.4 metres. In the north, confused 0.5 metres, and in the east, east to southeasterly one to two metres, and also a south to southwesterly one to two metres in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading 1.5 metres. For tomorrow, the winds are east to southeasterly at 10 to 20 knots about the south and east, reaching up to 25 knots in the southwest during the evening. The winds are tending east to northeasterly at 15 to 25 knots about the northwest and reaching up to 30 knots in the far northwest in the evening.
the swells in the west and south, southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres. In the north, continu continuing to be confused at 0 0.5 metres. And in the east, an east to southeasterly of 0 0.5 to 1.5 metres. And also a south to southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres in the south. Terrific. Thank you for that, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. Cheers. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest forecast as we head into big uh, Christmas weekend. Rob on the text line says the high prices that are being paid for fruit and vegetables sure makes a mockery of hearing that people are doing it tough. It just sounds like the market is continually manipulated. Thank you for that, Rob. 0438922936 is that text line number. Uh, what have we got? Uh, Dave from Loon. G'day, Dave. He says, Ray Pyrethrum. Who says ag science doesn't offer groundbreaking opportunities? I was an undergraduate when this industry was in its infancy, circa mid-1980s, developed by the horticulture section of the Ag Science Faculty at UTAS. Good on you, Dave. Thank you for that. And uh, it's becoming a very big industry. It's the new P. You know, we had potatoes, we had poppies, and the big new P is pyrethrum. And it just keeps expanding. Okay, what happened with the wool market this year, you might ask. We might answer that in just a moment. Get ready to be entertained in 2023. ABC 23. Action. The News Dream Team are back with Season 2 of The Newsreader. We interrupt our programming with breaking news. Marta Dusseldorp stars in new dark comedy, Bay of Fires. We're going away for a while. A surprise holiday. Plus, Gruen, Hard Quiz and so much more. Just good TV. Looking forward to 2023 on ABC TV and ABC iView. Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. After a fairly lacklustre couple of months in the wool game, the market has finished the year on a more positive note. In the new year, Tasmanian wool will be sought after when farmers in flood-affected areas of the mainland try and offload their fleece. Wool broker Rob Calvert takes a look back at some of the highs and the lows of the season, talking to Larissa Smith. Uh, the week finished up very positively last week. Um, we saw gains of 50 to 80 cents across the merinos and, and 10 to 20 cents on the crossbreds, um, albeit with a, with a small little dip on the last day um, in Melbourne, selling in isolation on Thursday back about 10 to 20 cents. But that was probably more exporters uh, not wanting to carry unnecessary stock over the Christmas break. Let's look back at the last 12 months. It's hard to remember when there was a, a positive glow around the industry, but it was at the start of the year. Yeah, the first six months of the calendar year were very positive. Uh, we opened up, uh, well, basically... December sale last year, um, 17 micron, for example, closed at uh, 24.38 clean. It's closed last week uh, at 22.47, so that's sort of an 8% drop year on year. But we must remember in June of this year, it peaked at about over 2,800 cents. So the drop from June to now is about 20%. Yeah, certainly it's a tale of two halves for this year. We saw a strong rise in the first half and, it, and we lost that pretty quickly in the second half. Can you remember what the trigger was at that halfway mark? Well, it was probably a, a number of things. I mean, the market, it, 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 the fine will look too dear compared to everything else. And we were talking about that. I mean, it was... Um, it was breaking a lot of records as far as the gap between fine wool and medium types, for example, and we were all quietly hoping that we might see medium types improve to close that gap, um, but that just didn't happen. We saw things, uh, the Europe, European energy crisis and, and just uncertain 
uncertain uh, economic conditions in the Northern Hemisphere spooked the market a bit and we just saw a rapid retrace for that gap to close by final coming off. Yeah. And that just sort of was sustained, really. I mean, the energy crisis is still very much apparent in Europe. Is that still a concern going into 2023? Yes, it is. Um, so Europe generally, the greater wool market, I guess, out of Italy in particular, is reserved, a bit sort of um, negative. But within that, there are pockets where they're quite bullish and there's quite a lot of inquiry still. And that's, um, you know, in the program space, in the non-mule space, RWS is still... Um, a buzz topic up there so those little areas are still keenly sought but um, they're still very very cautious yeah and for Tasmanian wool growers you're fortunate if you do have a contract with with some of these um, niche clubs oh we certainly saw it this year and not not so much just the niche clubs either I mean we we um, we locked away some forward pricing just on the traditional forward markets earlier in the year Um, at what at the time were quite heavy di- discounts to the spot market, but then with what's happened, the ma- the markets come back to that level, and you know they've been in front in those contracts. So it's a good lesson in almost taking the blinkers off and identifying a good price at the time, regardless of what's happening around you. And um, you know that's the, the people that that took that approach are in front because. Uh I think wool growers did change their uh, selling strategies throughout the season. Normally they might hold them over for a couple of months or wait to a, the traditional Tasmania sale or whatever it might be, but they were selling them, selling those bales as soon as they were coming off the sheep. Yeah, certainly, again, with Farmall, it, it was a very easy decision because the prices were so good. Um, and we've spoken a lot about Farmall uh, this morning, but interestingly, the broader you go, the more um, level the market has been. So we've seen this sort of wild upswing and then correction with fine types, Um, but 19s and 21s are much more level. They uh, started the year at about 16, close to 1,700 cents. They closed at 16.70, so really quite close. Uh, They peaked in that June period at 1,800. So they followed the same pattern, but nowhere near to the extreme of fine types. Growers making any money from crossbred wool? Oh, no, crossbreds, unfortunately, <laughs> they're still struggling. Um, I mean, we go back two years ago when we first saw the COVID downturn and we were disappointed with crossbred prices and they've just continued to slide. Um, so they're, they're not at their lowest point now. Um, they're, they're slightly above that point, but, um, yeah, no, very disappointing levels at this stage. Need a return of the really thick bulky jackets yeah well it's it's unfortunately with the crossbreds it's it's just a it's a global oversupply of that type you know there just aren't the markets to soak up the the volume that we produce we've mentioned europe what's happening in china our biggest buyer of wool in australia how much has the loosening of the covid zero policy played into well the lift in prices in the last week and and going forward yeah well certainly the the last two weeks have been purely off the back of that change in policy you know dropping the zero covid policy um which in turn I think was a reaction to uh, some very weak economic numbers out of China in November and and, and also October. Um, so that look they've softened that policy, and at the same time we had there hadn't been meaningful quantities sold up to China since earlier in October. So we were expecting them to come back in, and normally what happens the longer they sit out. Uh, when they do re-enter, you'll see a bigger spike because they just need to secure more volume. Um, and that's pretty well what we saw. So that COVID news came out. That was the shot in the arm we needed over the last two weeks. Um, but now it remains to be seen what will happen in the new year. Um, I don't expect 
us to just continue to march dearer from here. I expect them to still to be that play that in and out game that they have been known to. Cautious approach. Mm-hmm. So a meals opening up to a greater capacity in China, or is it, or is it still sort of a bit ad hoc? Um, I think the capacity's sort of always been there. Um, it's, but they, it's a hand-to-mouth sort of mentality. You know, they don't have... There's certainly not greasy stock up there, excess greasy stock. So um, they need to keep buying. Um, so it depends, and that's the great unknown. And we know that they've entered and bought some significant quantity in the last two weeks, um, but we never know exactly how much that is. So now we sort of see and see how that purchasing um, plays out over the next few weeks. Well, obviously no sales for three weeks, but now we open back up. Um, and then it'll be a question of, you know, when they have to re-enter and buy some more. What can Tasmanian farmers take away from this season? Well, it's been a good season. I mean, despite the last few months for fine wool, if you ran the uh, the average over the 12 months for, for fine wool types, it's been very, very, very good. Um, and I think looking forward, it's positive too because... Um, you know, Tasmania has a high proportion of non-mules, um, high proportion of RWS, so we've got a lot of interest in those boutique um, European types. Um, but also I think we're going to see a large volume of low-quality wool hitting the market from the mainland in early in the new year. Because, because of, of the floods. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So over long, tender, um, vegetable matter is going to start piling in at the end of um, summer. So Tassie's on the right side of spec there, so that will help. That's Rob Calvert from Wool Solutions chatting to Larissa Smith about the last 12 months on the wool markets. And those auctions will resume again the week starting January 9, 2023. Almost here. Well, shearing is known for its back-breaking work, but what if there was a way to alert shearers when they're at risk of getting an injury? Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne has just finished his PhD after collecting data from sensors worn by shearers to detect certain stresses and strains. Certainly the catch and drag is, you know, a, a big effort, but but really the um, actually just spending all of that time in a really poor, stooped position bent over at the back for, for, for long periods of time is also something that's really um, not, not very good. But that that's really the whole job um, when you um, if you consider it so it's all it's all pretty hard would you say that there's more pressure on some of those key muscles towards the end of the day after shearers have had you know nine ten hours in the shed uh definitely certainly so we we look at um basically looked at looked at all of the data and we're very much looking for key points in in the data that are basically following that that trend of things basically getting constantly worse over the course of the day so we're really looking to pick up things um, in the data that that are getting worse, and then yeah, from there we sort of yeah identified a few key muscles where where this trend is really more pronounced, and then something that's shared amongst the sort of whole population that we sort of measure as well. So where are those two key muscles on your back? I guess the the first one is called the erector spinae muscle. It's basically the main sort of long, the two long sort of muscles that go down the middle of the back, and and. Um, yeah, so that one there basically lower down in the, in the lower back and then there's another one which is off to the side a bit and it's a bit a bit deeper which is very sort of key for, for stabilisation in, in the lower back as well. So the most recent study of those shearers, where did the sensors go on the body and um, what, what were you trying to collect from that information? So there's two types of sensors that we use. One of them um, is is these muscle sensors, and so the latest stuff is with the um, targeted setup. So we have 
just yeah, one sensor uh, uh, each on these two muscles, um, just on one side of the body, um, as well as some other sensors that, that measure basically the, the body movement. So we're looking at the, um, the actual body um, motion at just on, on the rib cage and the, and the pelvis, and then these two muscle sensors as well. And then we can get, yeah, basically, um, you know, most of the information that we're getting with the really sort of complicated setup, just with a much um, smaller and, and more compact setup. And so what do the sensors do? Like, how do they work? How do they pick up that a twinge or a, a pain reactor or something in the muscle? Yeah, so it's still it's still very much looking at basically sort of things that change sort of over the day. So we're looking at kind of sheep to sheep what happens in these sensors. But, but the muscle sensors will basically measure the electrical activity in the muscle, and that's something that we can pick up from the surface of, of the skin. And then these other sensors are just basically measuring just like the angle that, that the body part is, is at. So looking at just sort of like the joint angle between, yeah, how, how far bent over you are at the, using the lumbar spine, basically. And the whole idea of this is to try and, in a way, predict when shearers are going to get close to developing an injury. Have I got that right? Yeah, trying to provide some information of basically the level of, of risk that they're currently at. Could something like this slow them down if, if they're getting alerts to say that they're uh, at a higher risk of, de of um, developing an injury? It, it, it could, yeah. We, we, we really, at the moment, uh, what we've got right now is something that we can sort of help them make that um, decision in terms of, you know, their work rest kind of period. So, so information to help them sort of make that trade off in terms of looking after the body versus shearing as many sheep as, as they can. Yeah, and then possibly in the future we could we could um, looking at some more sort of active solutions where if we sort of yeah help them a bit more, maybe we can do both both in terms of help reduce injury and also you know not not require them to slow down basically. How is the the wool industry involved in what you're doing? Oh, well, we, we've had um, a lot of support from Australian Wool Innovation, or uh, AWI. Yeah, so right from the beginning, we sort of, as soon as I sort of signed on, we sort of got in touch um, with them, and they were quite quite keen to, to hear about the plans, and then they sort of provided some of yeah, the initial funding that we had, and then they've been sort of involved the, the whole way along. Well, where to next for this project? Is there a way to, to take it forward into a, a, a commercial sense? Yeah, we're actually looking a bit of that um, right now, getting trying to get some, some funding to actually get a kind of a more properly uh, kind of engineered actual product rather than kind of the prototype that, that we've got. Um, and that's something we're sort of maybe looking um, that we can sort of get something out there, maybe through some something like a a shearing sort of school kind of training we can get a pilot going with a bit of a, a product there yeah that's i guess the next step I, I do hear a little bit about um yeah these injuries being a, a pretty big barrier for people getting into the industry um so so definitely even at, at the, the very least being able to have sort of more information around how they how they're going and how they're tracking along even as they sort of learning to to shear more more sheep as well and, and sort of yeah, helping, helping um, prevent sort of injuries early in their career would be quite good as, as well. That's PhD candidate Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne's Human Robotics Lab talking there to Larissa Smith about a study into injuries suffered by shearers using sensors and looking at ways to try and reduce the injuries in the shearing shed. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. We'll spare a thought for grain farmers in parts of Victoria who are starting to accept that they'll still be harvesting after Christmas. 
In a typical year, it's a job that takes four or five weeks for the Watsons, who are based at Nearby, just outside of Swan Hill. Ryan Watson has told Kelly Hollingworth it could take 10 to 12 weeks this season for the harvest. We crop around 2,500 hectares, so not, not a large scale by any means, but it's, this year it's become an operation that's taking at least or twice as long due to the, uh, the shorter days, the cooler weather um, and the, the large crops. What's the quality like? Uh, quality's holding at the moment um, and likes of the, of the wheat. It's, it's just scraping in as a, as a premium or, or a hard wheat. The likes of your falling numbers tests are, are still above the limit. We're in the H2 category at the moment. Barley's was all feed, but that was expected. You know, they got a malting grade, which is probably your top of your barley's that it was never going to make it. But, um, yeah, likes of your, your proteins were, were too high and, uh, yeah, a few other defective grain. How big a contrast is it between last year when things were pretty dry? I'm going to use decels between 0 and 10. Last year would have been a 2 to 3, and, and this year, yeah, if it was an 11, it would be that. In talks of yield yeah, and rainfall, she's around that 4.5 tonnes of the hectare, barley and wheat, which is more than double our average yields. That's if we can get to it. Um, it's, we had 200 mils in October, um, which has made the season quite challenging. Um, just to literally drive on the on the paddock without getting bogged is, has been the biggest issue for us. We've been bogged over 50 times and we've, we've been harvesting for three weeks. Our new truck driver has managed to keep his, uh, his bog tally to a zero at the moment, so that's uh, a slab coming back in his direction. <laughs> Season's not over yet, though, is it? That's right. Yeah, no, it's, we've, we've been running a, uh, a beer currency for for any grain spills or, or bogs or uh, any other accidents. But um, no, Tony here's had a, had a really clean slate. How did you end up finding Tones to work on the farm? I followed his page, Tones Trucking Stories, on Facebook and thought this bloke was a bit of a character and, and he'd moved uh, to live after leaving the transport industry um, at Nia, which is quite close to here. And, and I, uh, yeah, just approached him and um, said if you'd like to experience a wheat harvest and this is this is the last harvest um come out for a look so from then we've yeah, become mates and uh he he was keen to to drive for me this year and it's it's been a blessing um to have a, a truck driver let alone a, a b-doubled licensed truck driver that can um help us out because it's probably the biggest challenge of harvest is is finding labor it's um a truck driver is almost impossible um, let alone someone just to sit in a header or a chaser bin. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's working really well. <laughs> you don't get any more perfect than that. That's how you load a truck, ladies and gentlemen. One out of 50 and you might get it spot on. And this is the truck driver Ryan Watson was talking about. Tony Fulton has 124,000 followers on Facebook with his Tones Trucking Story page. He's thoroughly enjoying his time working for the Watsons. Uh, it's been great thus far, I think, and, you know, it's a great family. And, you know, the best thing about going out to a farm is, is something that I've, I've never experienced, that you work all day and then you go into the paddock and your mate's wife is just cooking a meal. And you sit there, you eat that, and you go, beautiful, and then you get back to the yard, you, you have a beer, and it's just... Uh, it's just a great experience. I used to live in my truck that I that I owned for about three, four years, 
Um, and, and that was my life with, with the dog and, you know, where, wherever I end, ended up, that, that's where I was. Only months ago, I decided to, uh, to sell my business and, and move on and, and go, go in a different direction. And uh, that's where I'm at now. In my Winnebago at the back of Ryan's, Ryan's place doing a little bit of harvest. You've definitely been quite active on social media in the time that you've been here. How keen are you to share your stories and your experiences while you're working here? Oh, very keen. You know, that, that's what it's about. And, and that's a good thing about working with Ryan as well. Here at um, Cedar Lodge that given the opportunity to, you know, work, get paid and, you know, sort of put out there how farming works and, you know, and I'm learning on the go too. And that, that, that's, that's a fun thing that I keep asking questions and then, then I'll put it in a video and, you know, put it out to other people because I find it really interesting and I assume other people will. We're at the shed at the moment where there's a couple of old trucks. You've yeah. had the chance to take one for a drive, which looks like it's all been... You've taken all of them for yeah. a drive yeah. and it seems to have been quite a, a highlight of harvest. What, what makes you excited about getting the chance to get behind the wheel of them? That's the Atkinson. Uh, dirty old, what is it, 250 Cummins on a good day, yeah. But, uh, you know, she goes pretty well to a certain extent. 77, that one. That was the bee's knees back in the day. Same as the uh, Mercedes behind us there. That's a 974, that one. Um, I haven't got out of fourth gear on that one yet. It struggles. We have it in the paddock the other day, I think 36 tonne. But that doesn't matter. When it's just in the paddock to the yard, it's all legal. So that, that's fine. But that was a bit of fun. Like it's, a, it's a five speed. And you don't get to fifth. I don't know how they did back in 1974 either. But, um, you know, it's just a fun little truck to drive. Um, but uh, I, I think the main one that, that Ryan's got here is the... Uh, the 404 19-meter V-double that it ticks all the boxes. It really does. You, you can put 38 tonne on it within 19 meters. This harvest looks like it could run into Christmas. How common is it that something like that what would happen doing? here? If the weather's fine, we'll still send everyone uh, yeah, home to be with their families and take as much time as they need off. Possibly a, uh, an intermission Harvest cutout might be involved, which uh, just to keep everyone uh, positive and uh, refreshed, and then we'll get back into it. But I think this harvest will continue to the end of December if we don't have any more rain events. There's a lot more crop we've got to go back to that we couldn't access uh, due to the, the wet paddocks. So, yeah, that, that will string it out to potentially a, yeah, a 10, 12-week um, operation as opposed to four or five. Nerebi farmer Ryan Watson speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth. You also heard from uh, Tony Fulton, a bit of a character who's been carting grain. Uh, just before we go, Lisa on the uh, text line from the Tasman Peninsula says, Hi Tony, how about a mechanical floor with a shearer stands that could be lowered until the shearer's back is straight? Hmm, that's an idea. Thank you for that, Lisa.
Uh, don't forget our ABC Rural Facebook page and ABC Rural Online. Plenty of great stories there for you to peruse. That's our Country Hour for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.